Do you have any verses in the Bible that you just wish weren't there? Like Mark 135, where it says, Jesus got up early while it was still dark and went to a solitary place to pray. Because I'm called to be like Jesus, but I'm not a morning person. I know I'm supposed to share why I like today's passage in James 1, but it's a love-hate relationship. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I've had cancer twice. My grandpa and an uncle both passed away early after a 10 plus year battle with cancer and my mom has had cancer and my stepdad currently has a stage four incurable and operable cancer. When I hear cancer, I know it's going to be a trial and that perseverance is going to be necessary. I think, okay, Lord, what are we gonna have to go through this time? It's not what do we have to get through to get back to life or what speed bumps do we have to move past? Because the trials and the temptations are a part of life. James says when we face trials. We will all face trials of some kind, not necessarily cancer, but we have to be careful not to miss out on what the Lord is going to do through us in those times. It's because of the trials and what we go through while clinging to the Lord that we are mature and complete. And honestly, I kinda wanna be lacking in something, because if I'm not, it means I have been through everything and I really hope God doesn't think that highly of me. Word, that's a really good word from, uh, from Matt. Let me open us up with a word of prayer before we dive into our text. Father, um, just thank you for how much you love us. Thank you for your care for us, your concern over us. Uh, Lord, I know that there are probably some folks in here this morning that just question. They question, um, one, your existence. And that's just reality that, that many of us go through from, from time to time. But we also go through times in our life where, where maybe we don't question your, your existence, but God, we question your goodness. We do question your concern, your care for us. Thank you that you are big enough, your shoulders are broad enough to handle um, all of our, our doubts. Lord, we want to believe. We, we pray the same prayer that, that someone once said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And when it comes to to trials in our life, man, oftentimes that's the, that's, those are the moments that really have a way of, of, of making our doubts um, rise up to the, to the surface. And so as we deal with those, God, may we just have your wisdom and your grace. May we know that, that you are near to the brokenhearted. And Lord, I even know as we dive into our, our passage today about this, it's going to bring up a lot of hurt, a lot of anxiety. It's going to bring up some pain for people, whether something that they've walked through in the past, something that, that someone they love is walking through, maybe something that they're walking through right now. And God, for that person, my, my prayer, Lord, is that you will meet them right where they are. And Father, you will just wrap your arms of love and grace around them and let them know that, God, this word, it is for them. It's for them. God, may your voice be the first voice that we hear in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James is, uh, is a book that we're going to become really familiar with over the next, uh, next couple of months. But if you're not quite familiar with it yet, that's okay. Uh, James is in the back of, of your Bibles. Um, it is past the book of Hebrews. If you get to like uh, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far, head back over to the left. Uh, you'll find the, the book of, of James. 
Uh, I'm, I'm curious this morning as we jump in, how many of you um, are siblings? How many of you have a brother or a sister? Let's see a show of hands. Okay, all right, good. Go ahead and put your hands down. How many of you, some crowd participation here, you guys ready? All right. How many of you are the oldest sibling? Raise your hand. Let me see. Wow, that spoken like an older sibling right there. Don't you forget it. <laughs> um, how many of you fall somewhere in the middle? You fall in the middle, show of hands. All right. Um, I was the oldest that grew up in, in, in our house. Um, I had an older half-brother that would come and visit every now and then. And, and so that just like threw all the dynamics off whenever he would come, like being the oldest and then becoming the middle all of a sudden. Uh-uh, I wasn't having that. Um, how many of you are the youngest? This may explain some things. Yes. Yeah, the youngest. Uh, anybody in here, we don't want to leave you out. Anyone the only child? Raise your hand. All right. We got some only children in here. So I, I, was, um, I came across some pictures this week that, that kind of explain um, some sibling dynamics, and I thought it might be helpful for us. Uh, so oftentimes, firstborns, the ones that, <clears throat> the words that are used to characterize them, perfectionist. I mean, so if you know Tim, obviously. These are bossy. There we go. I knew we'd find a word in here somewhere. Mischievous, uh, no, conscientious responsible leader. You know, those, those are kind of some words that characterize firstborns. It's not always consistent. It's not always true, but, but oftentimes you find yourself falling in this. Middleborns are adaptable, independent, kind of the go-between people pleasers. They can be rebellious because, hey, don't forget about me. I'm still here. Uh, feel left out. They can be peacemakers, social. Lastborns are social, charming, outgoing. Man, why am I talking, telling firstborns this? They're like, oh, we already know. We already know all of this stuff are lastborns. Uh, can seek attention. They're fun. I love lastborns. And then you have only children or kind of a combination of all of these things. Uh, confident, you know, they're perfectionists as well. They can seek approval. Sensitive, they're leaders. And like these are, these are words that can characterize, but sometimes I think memes do a better job. And so we have this picture here. Um, first child eats dirt, parent calls the doctor. Second child eats dirt, parent cleans out mouth. Third child eats dirt, parent wonders if she really needs to feed him lunch. <laughs> Middle children, young children are like, yeah, no, that's, that's true. Uh, let's go to this next one. <laughs> The moment that poor guy realized that he was the middle child, he's just in there. I don't think I like this. Some of you have seen this picture before. I thought it'd be appropriate to bring it back in. Uh, this next picture. This is the moment when Addie realized she wasn't the only child <laughs> in our house. Uh, she's looking at Nora going, can we take this thing back? <laughs> You know, it's hard. Siblings and family, family dynamics are just rough. And, and some of you like are really well aware of how difficult families can, can be. Um, but, but the sibling relationship can also be tough. James, um, James was the younger brother of Jesus. And, and so you may have grown up and, and felt like, you know, your older sibling had a Messiah complex. Um, James' older sibling actually was the Messiah. And, and so it led to some tension, as you could imagine, um, in this relationship. And, and, and we, we see that kind of through the Gospels, but when we get to the beginning of the book of James, it seems like all of this is kind of cleared up. Let, let's take a look at it. James chapter 1 
starting in, in verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's pause right here because I don't want us to, to pass over this too quickly. James refers to Jesus as Lord, but he didn't always feel that way. He didn't always feel that way. In fact, those of you who have siblings, you know, think about what it would take for your brother or sister to convince you that they were God. <laughs> it would take a whole lot, right? And, and so James kind of was in that very same boat. And all of this added up to create this very complicated family dynamic. Mark chapter 3 records a time when Jesus was in a home preaching James and his brothers and his mother heard that he was near, and so they actually went to the house. The text says that they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. That's a far cry from Lord. Jesus has gone crazy. We got to go and bring him back home. And, and so they, they go to this house. They're standing outside the home. They're saying, Jesus, knock it off. Come to your senses. Come back home with us. And don't miss what happens next. Some people from the crowd, they go um, inside of the home and they say, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you. They want you to come home. And this is what Jesus says. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here, here, not, not out there, here. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother and sister and mother. You know, there are some times when I read the words of Jesus, maybe you have this experience as well. There are sometimes I read the words of Jesus and I just think to myself, whoa, that, that's really harsh. Like, did you really have to go that strong? I mean, I mean, imagine what is going on here. Like, don't, don't miss the magnitude of this. In this moment, Jesus basically disowns his family. He says, they don't matter as much. My mother and my brother and my sisters, they're in, in here with, with me. And some of you have a son or a daughter who's disowned you, and you know the pain that Mary's feeling when that message travels from inside of the house to outside of the house. Some of you have a sibling who doesn't want anything to do with your family anymore, and you know the pain that it causes your parents. You also know the frustration that you have with them, and every time you think about it, it just kind of riles up something inside of you. I imagine James and his brothers being enraged in this situation. They're, they're, they're hurting for their mother who, who just heard this news that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with her, but they're also probably standing there thinking to themselves, Jesus, who do you think you are? Like, we know who you are. We know where you came from. Who do you think you are talking to us like this? Then something interesting happens. A couple of years go by. Jesus is crucified. He's buried. And then a few days later, rumors start to spread that uh, he's alive again. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 
This is what happens. He says, Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And look what he goes and does. He, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then who did he appear to? James. James. And I imagine that this is the moment that changes absolutely everything for James. Like when you see a man that you watch die now standing before you, standing right in front of you, talking to you, a man that you've had issues with in the past who sought you out, not to rub it in. You know, most older siblings would do that. Be like, see, I told you I was who I said I was. Not to rub it in, but to show him love and compassion. He sought you out to show you the truth. Man, that changes everything, doesn't it? It did for James, and I think it continues to change everything today. It, it's, it's one of the reasons why we celebrate Easter. In Easter, we find that the power of the resurrection trumps the power of anything else in our lives, past or present. Like that Jesus was dead, and now he's alive again. Man, that trumps the power of anything else in your life, any hurt that you've gone through, any pain that you've gone through, because Jesus is alive. James saw the risen Jesus, and that changed everything for him. From that moment on, he started to believe. He followed Jesus. He went back and, and joined the disciples. He, he quickly um, became a, a leader within the church because, you know, nepotism. And uh, so he, he grew as a leader in the church. And, and there's a time in, in Acts chapter 11 and 12 where we record that, that the church experiences persecution for the very first time. These young followers of Jesus um, were now being martyred for, for their faith, like collectively. It wasn't just like these isolated incidents, but now they're like coming after the church and, and it scatters across the nations. One of the people that flees for their own life is Peter, who was the leader in the church. And when Peter leaves, James steps in and assumes leadership within the church. He stays behind and he shepherds and he leads a church still experiencing these trials, still experiencing this, this persecution because of their faith. And he, he continues to minister not only to them, but also to their family members, to their friends who had fled Jerusalem for their lives that scattered out through the region. And it's his love for Jesus and it's his love for those who have lost everything for the cause of Christ that leads James to write these words. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, in other words, to the Jewish Christians scattered from the persecution. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. See, James has seen firsthand the cost of following Jesus. There's a cost to it. He's seen it. But he's also seen the joy on the other side of that cost, a joy that nothing and no one can take away. He encourages his original audience and us not to give up when times get tough, not to give up when trials or sufferings come our way. When, and when James talks about 
facing trials. There's an interesting word that he uses here. That, that word literally means to fall into something. It's like you're walking along and you trip and you fall. You fall into it. And, and I think what he's, what he's saying here is, is that, you know, we don't go looking for trials and difficulties in our life, right? And we don't go searching them out, like wake up one morning, be like, you know what I need? I need a really good trial to walk through. My life's been just a little bit too easy. It needs to be a little harder. We don't do that. We don't go looking for trials. We don't go looking for suffering. We fall into them. They find us. We don't go looking for them. And so you didn't ask for that divorce. But here you are, single, wondering what's next. You didn't ask for that diagnosis. Man, it came anyway, and the news hit you like a ton of bricks, and you felt your breath just being sucked out from you, and you're wondering, what is next? You didn't ask to be let go from work. You didn't ask to have a child struggling with addiction. You didn't ask for that trial that you're facing today, but you fell into it anyway. And so now the question is, how are you going to respond? Like, what's your next step from here? So James comes along and he tells us to consider it pure joy when we go through trials. That word consider, James is almost saying, like, you have a choice in this. We can choose to see our trials as a hindrance or as a temporary setback. We can see our trials as a reason to throw in the towel and say, I'm done, I've had it, I quit, can't do this anymore. We can choose to see our trials as God punishing us or, or just proof that he doesn't exist. And if he does, then he's not good and loving and kind. Like we can choose that or we can consider our trials as a tool that God uses to form and shape and mold us. A tool that God uses to show us how much he loves us and then how much our souls can find rest in him. I listened to an interview last week of author Ruth Bailey Barton, and she writes a lot about soul care and finding rest in a world that oftentimes views rest and, and healthy rhythms of life as a, as a weakness. Um, she, she's constantly trying to pull the church back to that, that rhythm of a Sabbath that God called. That's not just a, a Jewish law, but it's for all believers, all followers of Jesus to find rest. And, and she, she talks about how she wasn't always in that place in, in her life. Uh, she shared about a time when she was busy with work and family and church stuff, and it just added up and added up and added up. And she would look at her calendar. She'd get to the end of the week. She realized every single day she had something behind her, and every single day she had something ahead of her, and it was literally killing her. It was killing her emotionally and physically. It was killing her spiritually, even as she was trying to do ministry. Some of you, you're like, yeah, I've been there. She said one day she was riding her bike into work and, and she was coming up to this intersection and a guy was driving a truck and didn't see her or the stop sign and just plowed right into her on her bike. She said, I woke up, I was in the hospital and they were caring for me. She had some aches and pains, some, some bumps and bruises as you could imagine. And she was released Later on that night, after they found, you know, head's okay, no broken bones, you're just really tender, head on home. 
And she said she got up the next morning, and even though it was still incredibly sore and she was kind of limping around, she went back to work. And a friend saw her walk through the halls, and she went up to her and said, Ruth, what in the world are you doing? You were literally hit by a truck yesterday. <laughs> Go home. Rest. She said in her heart, she didn't feel like she could. She felt all this pressure at work and home. She had a to-do list a mile long that just kind of weighed on her and weighed on her. And she thought, there's no way I can take a day off. And so she just kept pushing through the pain, pushing herself to the point of mental and physical and emotional exhaustion. And finally, her boss and her coworkers and, and her husband like, came and got her. And they're like, you have to go home. They made her go home. And so she went, she took a few days off to heal up from her accident, and she said that it was in the midst of that pain, it was in the midst of that trial in her life that she learned the value of rest. And so she says, now I look back at that accident, not as something that God caused, not as something that God caused, but something that God used to get my attention, something that God used to help me find a more meaningful, deep, and satisfying relationship with him because it forced her to do something that she would not have done otherwise. It forced her to rest. And in doing so, it matured her faith and brought her into a deeper relationship with the Lord. So I think that that's why James is telling us to consider it pure joy when we go through these trials in, in life. And many of you could probably stand up and say, yeah, I've had an experience a lot like that. I had a heart attack, and I looked up, and I'm like, whoa, I've got to slow down my pace in life. And you readjusted. You lost a friend, and you looked around at your family and your friends, and you thought, I need to reconcile some things that are hanging. You go through difficulty in your life, and you look around, and you feel alone, but you find, man, God never leaves me. I think what James is telling us to consider these pure joy when we go through life is because he knows that what waits for us on the other side is a stronger, more mature, complete faith in God that he says lacks nothing. He knows that nothing in life, that absolutely nothing can satisfy us. Nothing can give us hope. Nothing can bring us joy. Nothing can be the solid rock that we can build our lives upon like faith in Jesus and the love of our Father. I think what James wants us to know, not just in our head, but also in our hearts, is this, that our trials refine our faith and they get rid of anything holding us back from a deeper relationship with the Father. As we go through these things, it, it, these trials pull out all of these impurities in our faith, all of these things that get in the way of this, this, this authentic, real relationship with God, and they bring it down to the most concentrated form. And we find in that moment a faith that is much richer than we had ever experienced, a faith that informs a whole lot more than just what we do on Sunday mornings. And I think what God desires for you more than anything else is for you to love and to trust him, to find your hope and your security in him. I'm telling you, he desires that so much that he wants to use anything that comes in your life to bring you to that place. And that doesn't mean that he causes them. He doesn't cause them. We don't fall into trials because God is sitting there pushing us into them. We don't fall into trials because God is punishing us, or because he doesn't note us, us or love us. 
We fall into trials because we live in a broken and fallen world where our bodies fall apart. They fail us. We live in a broken and fallen world where people fail us. But a world where God never does fail us. So God doesn't cause these things to happen, but because he loves us, he can redeem them. He can use them to refine our faith, to draw us into a deeper relationship with him. And so that's why we can consider it pure joy when we go through trials. But what if we're in a place where we just aren't quite there yet? <laughs> if we're a place where we're just not quite ready to find joy in our pain, where perseverance and mature faith sound good, but you're thinking, man, I'd rather have my health back. I'd rather be able to reconcile my broken relationships. I would rather have a little bit left in my, my bank account at the end of the month rather than a little bit a month left at the end of my bank account. <laughs> if you're in that place right now, I think that verses 5 through 17 give us some, some wisdom on how we can begin to shift our perspective on the trials that we face. I encourage you to go back home. We're not going to read all through these verses today, but go back home and just study James chapter 1 because there is some rich, beautiful stuff in here that we won't even have time to, to talk about in depth. We're just going to barely scratch the surface. And, and, and this is one of the reasons why we're calling this series Relevant Faith. Because, man, James has so much wisdom for those of us who are just trying to get through life. And for a lot of people, that, that term, you know, those two words, relevant faith, it kind of seems like an oxymoron, like those two things don't really go together. But I think that James would be exhibit A for why I think that that's not true. Like, it is, our, our faith, Scripture, is so incredibly relevant. And, and I think that in this, he, he gives us some, some tools that, you know, if you're not quite in that place yet where you're able to consider your trials as pure joy, he gives us some advice for how we can, can mature in our faith and, and, and get there. And the first thing he says is pray for wisdom. Like, if you have a hard time considering your trials with pure joy, James says pray for the wisdom to, to see them the way that God sees them. Pray for wisdom to trust him in the midst of all of these things. And then he, and then he promises that God will answer that prayer every single time. He, he, he answers the prayer for wisdom to all without finding fault, meaning God's never going to look at you and go, aren't you okay with this yet? Aren't you okay with this yet? Don't you know what I'm trying to do? And he invites us to pray for wisdom. And like a loving father, he gives it to us. I was talking to a friend this morning as she walked into the church asking her about a trial that she's going through of her own. And I told her at the end of the conversation, I said, man, it takes a lot of strength to go what you're going through. And she looked at me and she said, no, Sean, it takes a lot of surrender. That's a good word. I should have just said, hey, would you go and preach the sermon because you'll do a whole lot better job than I would. It's wisdom that's learned through the trials of life. James tells us, second, to run to God, not away. And the truth is, we know this, our trials can either push us away from God or they can draw us to him. James says that when we go through these trials, it's not proof that God doesn't love us or think highly of you. In fact, it's just the opposite. So run in order to persevere through this trial. And when you do, God is going to richly reward you. He will reward you with his peace and his comfort this side of heaven. But even more, he will reward you with the crown of life when you see him face to face. James tells us to notice where you turn for comfort. Don't miss this. This is, this is important. 
Where do you turn for comfort? When you hurt, when you're confused, when you don't have all of the answers, what you turn to in that moment oftentimes reveals the God that you worship. An acronym that I found helpful for this is HALT. Where do you turn when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired? Where do you turn when you're hungry? Maybe not just physically, and some of you are feeling that right now, and you're thinking, I'm about ready to turn to a restaurant as soon as you're done talking. (laughs) But maybe not so much physical hunger, but emotional hunger, spiritual hunger. Where do you turn when you just feel like there's something missing in your soul and you have this longing deep inside of you? Where do you turn when you're angry and you just don't know what to do with that anger and you just need some kind of a release? Where do you turn when you're lonely or when you're alone? No one's watching and you feel like no one cares. Where do you turn when you're tired physically, emotionally, spiritually? Oftentimes, how you answer that reveals the God that you truly worship. And and James, in verse 1, he says, listen... When we go through this and we're tempted, we're dragged away with our desires and we're enticed. It says, be aware, watch for what is tempting you. Stay close to the Lord. And then finally, James says, remind yourself that God is good. Verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting Shadows. Our situations change all the time, but our God never does. And James wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is good. He's good. He is with you. He is for you. And he wants to use all of these trials that you're going through in your life to bring you to a closer relationship with him. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And if you need a, re- a reminder of that, all you have to do is look at Jesus The resurrection changes absolutely everything. It changed everything for James. It can change everything for you too. God gave us Jesus to bear the weight of our sin, of our brokenness. He gave us Jesus to bear the weight of our pain so that we can have hope that we do not walk through these trials alone. That one day God will wipe away every tear. He will bring justice to every injustice. That one day there will be no more cancer, no more divorce, no more heartache, no more addiction. Through Jesus, God will one day restore all things to the way that he intended them to be from the very beginning. And until then, he says, hold on to me. Hold on to me and don't let go. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome this world, Jesus says. And so James tells us to consider, consider how you will view the trials when they come. As for me, I want to consider them with pure joy when they come because it's a whole lot better than the alternative. Walking through those trials with God is a whole lot better than without. And at the end of the day, what James knows and he wants us to believe, and I'll close with this, is Trials refine our perspective on who God is and how much he loves us and the relationship that he's calling us into with him. I'm telling you, when we understand that, we can have peace and assurance no matter what we face in this life.
you stand with me as I pray? God, this is a heavy thing that we're talking about this morning. And many people carry the weight of trials with them every single day as they walk through life. Would you, Lord, be their source of strength and hope? Would you show them that at the end, at the end of this trial, whether it, whether it be the end here on earth or whether it be the end in heaven with you, that the end result is a closer relationship with you. It's a greater trust and faith in the one who is the lover of our soul, the one who never leaves us or forsakes us, the one who is close to those who are brokenhearted and hurting and lonely and tired. God, would you give us strength as we face the trials but not strength to be able to, to keep pushing through, but strength to surrender to you and to trust you above all things. Lord, may we say, may we say, come what may, it is well with my soul because we know that we can trust in you. In Jesus' name.